0: Let's pray. God, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we're in our second week of covering grace. That's a big subject, right? It's powerful. immense. Grace upon grace is what we're calling it, uh, coming right out of the gospel of John chapter 1. We center and elevate God's grace over all. That's the center and the foundation and the rock upon which we build our theology. It says in the book of Discipline, Grace pervades our understanding of the Christian life. Grace is the undeserved, unmerited, and loving action of God in human existence through the ever-present Holy Spirit. Grace Karis. Gift. Three weeks ago, I walked over from the office to the corner market to get some sushi. And a glass of sweet tea. And a Heath bar. That's my routine. And so I walked over there to get that. and was right there at the conveyor belt. Right there where you put your groceries there. And it rolls it on down. And there was a young woman there. Uh... Purchasing, she was ahead of me. Gave her plenty of space, and the register person who was ringing it up, and that old conveyor belt just rolled that sushi and that Heath bar and that sweet tea right on down to the register. And the woman working the register wasn't really; uh, uh, she didn't notice that it wasn't mine. She thought it was hers, and so she started, she started ringing it up on that young lady's account. And I looked at her and I said, that is so sweet of you to take care of my lunch. And she looked at me quite surprised. And the registrar, the, the woman working the register was a little embarrassed. And uh, we all had a good laugh. And she looked at me and she looked at the register and she says, I'm buying his lunch today. I'm buying his lunch today. I kind of like it's kind of hard sometimes when somebody does something nice to, no, no, I've got $10. I don't need it. Here's the money. No, no. Lunch, lunch is on me. old man, I guess she was thinking. But anyway, lunch, lunch is on me. Lunch is on me. But why was I so resistant to receive a gift from, from a generous and from a kind stranger? And then I walked Way, kind of feeling guilty. And then I thought, I didn't even ask that woman what her name was, right? But man, lunch was so good that day. And I told her that day, I said, you know what, I appreciate that. I'm going to pay it forward, is what I told her. Lunch tasted better. But what a surprise of grace that I received from a young lady. Grace is one continuous movement toward us from God. It's not a thing. It's, it's a movement. It's, a, it's an energy. It's who God is moving toward us. It is the marrow of the bone of the good news, right? It's revealed by the story of Jesus that you've heard since you were three years old. And you keep, we keep plowing the soil about who this Jesus is because it teaches us What shape and form this grace is in. Because we believe Jesus is the exact imprint of God's very being. Jesus is our window to who God is. What God's about. And thankfully, because we know Jesus, we know God gives away massive, copious amounts of grace. Pure gift. God is love, says one New Testament writer. Though this grace... One movement toward us, the founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley, he experienced grace in three different ways, and that's sort of the Methodist way. We don't have a trademark or a monopoly on grace, right? But but the way we talk about grace is sometimes very unique, and it might be our unique gift to the world to remind the world about this. We experience grace in three different ways, prevenient. Prevenient grace. It's what I preached on last week. It's grace that is before us. Before, before you were even a twinkle in your mama's eye, God's grace was coming toward you. If you were baptized as an infant and water was put on your head and you know you don't remember it, we say, but God remembers it. And God was already planning something amazing for you from His amazing grace. God was pouring grace upon us before we knew it. And that's the foundation, that's the foundation of why we practice infant baptism. And when we break bread together, you remember last week I said, you don't even have to be a Christian to put a, knee, put a knee on this altar. Why? Because John Wesley thought that the bread and the cup might be a converting ordinance. It might be the very thing when you got to taste and see that the Lord is good that might turn your heart over. It's why we serve communion to little children. Little kids may not be able to recite the creed or to explain the trinity, right? But they know what it means to be hungry. They know what it means to belong and not to belong, and that's prevenient grace. But today for a few minutes, now prevenient grace, grace before us. Justifying grace is grace for us this moment, this time. It's what happens When we become aware of God's mercy and forgiveness, and we receive what God is offering to us, it's like we're saying yes to God's yes to us. John Wesley, when he was young, had a really good job. He was the dean of a university in England. Very young, had a good, but he had a chance to do, had had a choice to make, and he had a chance to do two different things. He could have gone to his father's church and become the senior pastor there. That was tempting because his parents were getting old and they could have moved in the parsonage. Or John Oglethorpe invited him to go to the Americas and be the priest in Savannah, Georgia, in a colony called Georgia. He chose the exciting one, Georgia. And it was one of the worst experiences of his life. Everything that could possibly go wrong during those few months in Georgia went wrong. He was on a boat, and it was shaking, and the waves were crazy and lapping up, and he thought he was as good as dead. And he was panicking, and he was shouting at God, as God saved me, right? There were some Moravians. It's a, it's a, it's a denomination that predates uh, Methodists, and there are a lot of them in Bethlehem. And they're a, a beautiful people, a beautiful tradition. He saw these Moravians praying and singing praises to God. And he said, I, what's wrong with this picture? You know, I'm, I'm an ordained priest in the Church of England. And I, I feel like I'm panicking. And these Moravians over there are worshiping. He barely survives it. He sets foot in the, on the beach that day in uh, St. Simons Island, Georgia. And uh, But the storm doesn't stop. It gets worse. He had a crush on this young lady, Sophie Hopke. He thought, wow, I think I've met the one and only. And uh, they started dating. John's brother, Charles, said, John, you're a missionary. Not time to be dating anybody. Cut it off. And so he did, but he didn't tell Sophie Hopke that. John Wesley wrote a lot of books. He didn't write a lot about, you know, um, A strong courtship, you know, or had a treat, you know, whatever. So she got mad and she started dating somebody else and she brought her boyfriend to communion. And John Wesley was not in the mood for an open table that day. He refused to serve Sophie Hopke communion. Not knowing that Sophie Hopke's uncle was a lawyer in town. And they pressed charges against John Wesley for slander. And he caught the next boat back. Failure. Failure. John Wesley had done everything right. An amazing, smart guy. But he was a failure. He felt like a failure. And he thought it was all over. And he didn't even know if he believed in God anymore. Much less could be an Anglican priest. Peter Bowler, another Moravian, said, uh, uh, counseled him and And dragged him to a Bible study at Aldersgate. Luther's preface to the Romans is what he heard. He might have even read what Pam read to us today. And this is what he put in his journal. About a quarter before nine, there was a change which worked in my heart through faith in Christ. He said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. John, at that point, set out to do bold things for God because Jesus, he knew at that point, without a shadow of a doubt, had done bold things for him. He preached thousands of sermons. He rode on a horseback all over England. He started tens of thousands of small groups. And so strong was this movement within the Church of England that the the nation could not contain it. And 200 years later, millions of people had benefited from the small group mindset of classes and bands and of this grace that Wesley enjoyed. You see, grace means this if it means anything. God does not reduce us to the worst things we ever did. But God loves us. That is astounding if you think about it. From this point on, John Wesley would flip the world on its head. Paul, the writer of of much of the New Testament, Pam read chapter 5, Romans chapter 5. It uh, is the first letter in order in the New Testament, right after Acts. It's his longest letter. And it's, so far as we know, the latest letter that he wrote before he died. So this was like the crown jewel. And he wrote so many things in it that we hold on to today. It's like Paul's greatest hits in his letter, right? His dramatic letter has impacted Christian thoughts for centuries. Romans has. This is the letter that inspired the Protestant movement. This is the letter that through Luther's writing changed John Wesley's life and enabled him to experience what we call justifying grace, being assured that you know that God loves you, that God does not have you dangling over some pit, but that God wants you and I to live into his justifying grace. Now, Paul's working through a problem in Romans. He sets out to help his church learn to live with each other, two people groups Gentiles who've been converted over and who love Jesus and Jews who are enamored with following Jesus. How do they live together is Paul's main point in Romans. Some Jewish followers were insisting that Gentiles needed to obey the food laws and the circumcision laws. Look, if you're going to follow Jesus... You got to follow the traditions of our fathers and our mothers. And Paul, who's a Jew among Jews, says, "No way, no way. Go on and eat with what you want, or not. Practice circumcision if you want, or not. But that's not what saves you." He then says, "You have to address your universal problem. All have sinned. Everybody has fallen short." We've all got a long list written on that piece of toilet paper, right? And no amount of law abiding will save you. Paul brings up Abraham, who didn't know about these kosher laws, right? But who trusted in God's grace to lead him through. He didn't live a perfect life. Paul said his faith made him righteous. He trusted the goodness of God. Paul brings up Adam, who just was asked to don't mess with that tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And he does. Kind of he and Eve sort of messed it up for all of us. At least all kinds of problems in this world. We've all sinned, says Paul. We've all put ourselves in a debt that we cannot pay back. But grace picks up the tab. Jesus picks up the tab. This is the hope that you and I hold together, Right? That God can change us into God's people. No religion or denomination can do that. No willpower can do that. You can't save yourself. This is the good news though. Because you don't have to. You don't have to justify yourself. God has already done it. Justifying grace is about the past, the present and the future. We read about this in Romans 5. You just heard Pam read. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. So something God did before us. Much more surely then, says Paul, now that God, now that we have been justified by His blood, that's the present, we have been, present perfect tense, we will be saved through Him from the wrath of God. God is saving us now. Salvation, justifying grace, means you can start living that life right now. Living saved is a present reality that moves with us throughout our life. Let me go back to my own experience like I did last week about um, growing up in a small town, an awesome town. I love Brookhaven. But many people that I grew up with, not all but many, saw justification or salvation as fire insurance. Right? They would Scare you into some decision. It was all about avoiding an awful place. It was something you did that got you a ticket to heaven. But Paul would say salvation happens right now. You don't have to die to receive salvation. You don't have to wait until you die. So when I got back from my revivals, all these revivals in Brookhaven, and my mom would say... Hey, what'd they ask you, Bruce? And I'd say, well, that preacher got up and said, all heads bowed and all eyes closed. And he said, if you die tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? That's what he said. And my mom would say, Bruce, can I give you a better question? If you're alive tomorrow and you don't die, where are you going to go? What will you do? That's a John Wesley question, if I've ever heard it. So what if you wake up tomorrow? How are you going to use this amazing, powerful grace that God has given to you right now, that God doesn't want you to wait to receive? Paul himself, the writer of Romans, was converted on his road to Damascus. He was knocked off his horse. He was confronted by the living Christ who said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he was changed. Three days later, Ananias came and laid hands on him and said, Brother, be healed. Paul was not changed in order to secure a place in heaven. He was changed to be on earth in an entirely different way. And he was. Paul was angry. He was so mad at the first Christians. They were messing up his faith. And he felt justified in holding the coats for Stephen while people stoned him to death. And he set out to end this fanatical movement that was happening in his faith. And Christ took away that anger and that pride. And Paul went from being the main objector and the main persecutor to being the main guy who was willing to be put to death For the truth that God saves us all. No matter what we've done. No matter who we are. We can't save ourselves. We can't even save our children. Not the right school. Reading all the blogs. Or signing them up for sports. None of that can save them. Our political candidates can't save us. No matter how slick their ads are. No ruthless political packaging can add one quality minute to your life. Only God. We cannot flourish without the grace of God. I was told in some places growing up that Jesus was there to, because God was so mad at me, that he was there to satisfy an angry God. He was there to change God's mind about me. And my mom would say, what did they say? And I'd tell her, she'd go, no... That Jesus was sent here to change our minds and our hearts about God, not God's mind about us. God's always loved you and me and us and can't stand it when we do things to hurt one another. It's not God who needs changing, it's us. God never hid from us, we hid from God. So being justified by God means... That you never have to justify yourself. And look at the benefits that we read. We have peace with God. We have access with God in this world, right here, right now. Now, justifying grace, and I like this analogy. Justifying grace is kind of like in a courtroom. Have you ever heard this? Maybe from a preacher or a teacher. It makes sense. You were guilty. You're in the courtroom. The judge and jury knew you were guilty and it was an easy case. You stood up to receive your sentence. The sentence was announced, and then the judge did something shocking. The judge said, I want to be the one to pay for your sentence. I'll step in. I can see how that's a powerful image, especially for people that have a really hard time forgiving themselves. But Wesley, oddly enough, didn't use that analogy a lot. He saw justifying grace not as a verdict, but as a healing and he talked about when Jesus would forgive the guy on the mat, right? That they dug through the roof and they came down and then he said, "I forgive you." And what did he say? "Take up your mat and walk." Is what he said. I know you've not lived the life, maybe that you've wanted to live, but Jesus says, "I forgive you." Let's start again. Let's throw let's let's drop it in the river and start again. I've got the living water for you. I know that that you're here at the, at the well, at the middle of the day. And I know that people have shunned you, but let's start all over. Because God's promise is right here. It's not miles away. It's not some secret. But you know there are some people walking around that know every word to amazing grace and they haven't experienced what it is. They can sing it. They know every word, but they don't trust it. In a way, they're walking through their own misery. Some people are like, well, Bruce, do you believe in heaven and hell? Oh, yes, I do believe in that. Because I see people walking in it every single day. Sort of a living hell. That they won't release themselves from. But they won't accept it. They They won't trust that God really meant what God said. When God said, I forgive you. They're waiting by the conveyor belt at the corner market. And they can't turn the corner. They won't let God pick up the tab. Don't let that be you. If you've ever felt forgiveness wash over you to where you could move again, and you can start over, where you feel free again, you've experienced justifying grace. You didn't do anything to earn it. It was always there for you, and you finally heard it. And it brought you back into a right relationship with God. That's grace. That's justifying grace. And you did nothing to deserve it. You just said, okay God, I quit. I give up. I surrender. And God did it for you. Now some people have had a St. Paul experience. Some of you could stand up and tell me the time you were knocked off your horse. Other people are like, Bruce, I don't know that I ever had one experience like that. But I've had these moments. And either way, your story is true and genuine. Because God's grace pervades us all. Whether it was gradual or fast. You know, when the thief on the cross turned to Jesus, he didn't know any doctrine. He never had gone to church. And he only done terrible things that led him to that circumstance. Yet when he turned to Jesus, Jesus turned to him. And Jesus promised him a place in paradise today. This day, he said, you'll be with me, justifying grace. The same grace available to John Wesley, to Paul, to John Wesley in his failure, to Paul in his anger, the same grace available to the thief on the cross is available to you. Now, you can be a new creation in Christ. You can be born again. And this is justifying grace. Let the lady in front of you pay for it. Let her take up the bill. Because her name is grace. She's glad to do it. And it'll make all the difference in the world. Jesus paid it all. For you, let us pray. God, don't let any of us get out here today without knowing that you paid it all. That you picked up the tab with your life and your death and your resurrection. You did something beyond our wildest dreams and beyond our understanding. Certainly great is the mystery of your gospel, O God. Help us, Lord, to receive it today. Your pardoning, unmerited, ridiculous, copious amounts of grace that you give to us all. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our final song, I think it's uh, page 365. It is. I love that. That's...